53 years studying him, teaching on him for 43 years. I've actually lectured on him now in 83 universities in 19 different countries. And, and I, I am surprised that people want to know about him. And if nobody wanted to know about him, guess what? I'd be all in. I'd be all in. Because my life has been shaped by the way he has helped me to see the world. And in seeing the world, help me to understand myself a little bit better, and even more, help me to know God better. I'll tell one last story before I pray and we get into the topic for today. It's a story I've shared here at Hume many times, so if you've heard it before, bear with me. Um, I've always been fascinated by words, even though I wasn't very academically inclined. I remember the first word I ever fell in love with. It was the word swish. <laughs> Mrs. Reinhardt's first grade class going through vocabulary cards, and my loyalty to that word occurred long before it was popularized by a clean shot in basketball. <laughs> I liked the word pokey, and if I went to school and got to say those words when she was going through flashcards, I thought that was a good day. But I have one word in mind that fits our context today. I was in third grade. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and we, we were poor. Uh, we had food, but, but going to the cafeteria at the school was prohibited. It was 31 cents. My mom always sent us with a, a sandwich, a couple cookies, and an apple. And, and I would watch those kids go into the cafeteria, and I said, what is that world like? I was just curious. And one day, to my complete surprise, my mom handed me 31 cents as I went out the door. And I put it in my pocket, and I was worried that I might lose it. You know, I kept feeling to make sure it was there. I go to the cafeteria. I couldn't have expressed it this way in third grade, but these were my exact sentiments. Being unfamiliar with the sociological protocols of elementary school cafeteria life, would I do something stupid and the other kids make fun of me? So I watched with intensity the girl in front of me. She grabbed her tray. I grabbed a tray just like that. She gave the woman at the cash register 31 cents. I was relieved of that burden. She put her cutlery on the tray, knife, fork, and spoon, and her napkin, and she brought it to that chrome roll bar counter. Do you remember that thing? And the first item on the menu was string beans. I hate string beans. And I thought, this is, I paid for this? Come on. <laughs> but apparently the girl didn't like them either. Because she said to the cafeteria lady, do you remember her? She was kind of heavy set. She had gray hair and a hairnet. She had a white outfit with an apron on it with smudge marks all over it. She was the ubiquitous cafeteria lady who worked in every elementary school cafeteria. <laughs> and the girl said to her, I'll have a small, here's the word, portion of those, please. I'd never heard the word. I watched cafeteria lady grabbed a big spoon with holes in it so the juices would go through. She dug down into a pot and put three little string beans in a little bowl. I said, that's interesting. I said to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a small portion of those too, please. She did the exact same thing for me. I went on down the aisle and I put the different things on my tray. You get to the end, what was at the end of the aisle? Desserts. And I saw what I thought were the most economically cut pieces of chocolate cake I'd ever seen. <laughs> and I wondered if maybe the word had other applications. 
So I said to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a large portion of that, please. She cut me the biggest piece of chocolate cake I'd ever seen up to that time, and I thought, that's a good word. <laughs> Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want a larger portion of him. And as long as Lewis helps me get that, I don't care if anybody else is interested in him or not. And as soon as he doesn't do that anymore, I don't want him. If you're here for Lewis, you came to the wrong place. If you're here for Jesus, you came to the right place. So let's begin. Let's pray. Father, I know I'm a pea brain. I know there's so much out there that I have no clue about. I'm grateful for what I've been able to study. I'm grateful for what I've been able to learn. I'm grateful for the way you've used it to take my breath away. And created me a sense of wonder and awe and worship. I pray, Father, recognizing as a pea brain that I don't have much to offer to these people. But one time your son took something like crumbs, fish and loaves, and he broke them and blessed them and offered them to the people gathered, and each one left satisfied. Would your Holy Spirit please do something like that with each of us today? Would he take the crumbs that are offered and distribute them in such a way that each of the individuals here in this room would be able to leave saying, God spoke to me, I got something. And that each one would be convinced it wasn't because of the pea brain efforts of a person. It would be because of the magnanimity of your Holy Spirit. Everybody in this room has different challenges on his or her heart. There's no way a single individual could say anything that could connect with that complexity but your Holy Spirit can. So we pray that he would take the words and that he would give each of us what we need, that each of us would gain a larger portion of you. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So we're talking about Narnia and other worlds. Now, Lewis, Lewis was interested in many different literary genres. Um, he, he felt that you needed to write in the genre that would help extend what you wanted to say. He wrote in his preface to Paradise Lost, when a man writes a love sonnet, he not only loves a beloved, he also loves a sonnet. He picks a literary form that helps him. When he wrote his science fiction works, he picked science fiction. He, he, he wasn't a, a person who was interested in the technology of science fiction. He was interested in it as a form of literature because he wanted to write romantic prose. So romantic prose, we'll talk about that uh, tonight, but it, it comes from uh, Virgil's Aeneid, where the city of Troy is destroyed, and he's off to start a new city, and uh, uh, Virgil was trying, in the Aeneid, Virgil was trying to give the Romans a mythology for their city. And so he's caught between the city of his birth and the city that will one day be Rome, and that's where the concept romantic comes from. Now, usually we see it applied to some sort of love romance between a man and a woman in one of those novels you buy at an airport before you get on a plane. But originally it was a, a longing for place. And so Lewis, aware of that, that genre of literature, wants to write for people to have awakened in them 
a sense of longing or a place. And so he thought, science, world's been explored. What if we did it extraterrestrially? What if we took a literary form that allowed us to try and awaken in people a sense of wonder by writing science fiction? Uh, when he wrote his autobiography, there's, there's a, 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 a biography that came out on Lewis not long ago. And the guy who wrote it's a brilliant scholar, and he's a great writer, but he missed Lewis, I think, because he's talking about surprise by joy, and he starts saying, well, why did Lewis not include this when he wrote that? And why did he leave that out? And pretty soon this biographer is talking about the Lewis who never shows up in the book, which is nothing more than a projection of the biographer. Lewis wrote autobiography because he said at the very beginning of that book, I'm telling the story of how I moved from atheism to Christianity. Consequently, his goal helps him shape what he will select and not select as he writes his book. And, and, and um, so I think that's interesting. There's, he picked autobiography as testimonial apologetics, basically. But he wrote an entire essay called Sometimes Fairy Stories Say Best What Needs to Be Said. And so we're going to explore that a little bit here today. And we're going to look at what he does with his Narnian Chronicles so that we can begin to see how it might help us to see ourselves and our world better, a world infused with the very presence of God, a world where God is wooing and beckoning other people to come to himself. Uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were best friends. And, and they became friends Early on in their academic careers at Oxford University, there was a student who was interested in Nordic myth in the Elder, uh, Elder Eddas, the, the Icelandic sagas. And he knew from doing tutorials with Lewis and Tolkien, they were both interested in it too. So he thought, let's start a little literary society and we'll read the old Icelandic sagas in the original Icelandic. And so he asked Lewis to come. He asked Tolkien to come. They knew who each other, who the other was. They didn't really know each other. So, so they read them, and Lewis describes it. He says each of the people in the group would maybe translate a line or two, and then Tolkien would go on for pages. You know, <laughs> Tolkien was a philologist. Lewis said he was a man inside language. He used to learn a language a year just to learn it. Um, if you know uh, the science fiction books by Lewis, do any of you know those, the Cosmic Trilogy? Um, the character Elwyn Ransom, Ransom is a philologist. He's modeled after Lewis's uh, acquaintance of Tolkien. And Elwyn is his first name, which means friend of the elves. It's kind of insider joke in that book, you know. But, but um, as Lewis, as Lewis was, was um, in that group, the students eventually graduated and went on. And now it's just Lewis and Tolkien showing up. And, and Tolkien, having gotten to know Lewis a little bit, seeing he was an honest uh, cr critic and whatnot, he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on something. It's occupying a lot of my time, and I'm really interested in it. I wondering if I could share it with you. And he let down his guard as an artist, a literary artist, and he was vulnerable with another person. And it happened to be the very rudimentary beginnings of the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien later said that book would have never come about had it not been for Lewis. Lewis wasn't a Christian at the time, but there were some things percolating in his heart. And it was Tolkien 
who had this late night conversation with him on Addison's Walk at Magdalen College, Oxford. And Lewis said Tolkien and another guy named Hugo Dyson were the human causes of his conversion. And ever after that, since the very beginning when they weren't even, when Lewis wasn't even a Christian, till after, all of the rest of his life, they, they were close. Matter of fact, there's a, a guy who, who's writing, uh, he wrote a book called The Inklings. His name was uh, um, Humphrey Carpenter. And, and he's a good writer, so you get sometimes sucked up into the vortex of a good writer who might not be a factual writer. You always have to be careful. And Christopher Tolkien, I mean, uh, Humphrey Carpenter said that Lewis and Tolkien had a falling out at the end of their lives. Well, I've had meals with a couple of Tolkien's kids, and one time over a beer, actually, with John Tolkien, his oldest son, I, I said, so Humphrey Carpenter said your dad and Lewis had a falling out at the end of their life. Is that true? He says, I read that in that book, too. I had no idea what he was talking about. I drove my father to see Lewis every week for a couple of hours, every week for the whole last year of his life. These guys were close. And they encouraged each other. And they talked about story. And they wanted to uh, write up something. So Tolkien, actually, shortly after The Hobbit came out, he gave lectures at St. Andrews University. And, and um, it's just a lecture called On Stories. Have any of you read Or On Fairy Stories. Have any of you read it? Yeah, and it's in Tree and Leaf, Leaf by Niggle. There's three, three editions of it. The, the, it was originally published by Lewis in a book called Essays Presented to Charles Williams, edited by C.S. Lewis. And then uh, it was later put in the Tolkien Reader. Have any of you ever seen that work? But they edit out all the Christian stuff in Tolkien's essay. Uh, Tolkien's essay is, is deeply rooted in his Christian faith. And then the, the work Leaf by Niggle, that's got um, uh, tree, and, tree and Leaf, it's called, but Leaf by Niggle is a short story, almost autobiographical story. It's a delightful story. And then it's got the essay with all the Christian elements in it. That's a good source for the essay. But I'm going to draw on that essay. Lewis said he thought it was the best thing that he had ever read on fairy stories, as far as a technical genre. So let me begin there. Um, Tolkien begins with an introduction. He says that stories are as old as language itself. The adjective gave the storyteller an enchanter's power. What do adjectives do in grammar? Describe. Huh? Describe. They describe. They basically, they basically reveal quality. Lewis, when he was young, said that, that um, he read Squirrel Nutkin, and it was the idea of autumn, the quality of that world that got him. He started reading North mythology, and he said it was the whole concept of huge regions of northern world. And it was quality he was looking for. What's the quality? The quality of life is infused all around us. You know, Lewis writes, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And the storyteller who can get into the quality of the world they're telling and the quality of the world they live in, so they could describe these things fairly well, that's a good thing. So Tolkien says, basically, that the adjective was a magical feature. And he says, you could take blue from the sky and attach it to the moon and come up with the mystical blue moon in your story. 
Or you could take green from grass and put it on a man's face to make a horror. You could take gold from metal and make golden fleeces. And all of a sudden, he says, with the adjective, you have the enchanter's power because you're communicating quality to your reader. And Tolkien says, man becomes a sub-creator. And all of us should be. We're made in the image of a God who created us. And even if you're not a professional artist, you should be engaging in some sort of creative activity because it's an expression of the way God made you and wired you. Very powerful, I think. So man becomes a sub-creator. And then Tolkien talks about the fact that stories, one of the features where the creativity comes in is as embellishments. Uh, it's interesting, uh, Lewis himself wrote an essay, what Chaucer really did to Il Filostrato. Il Filostrato is, is a, a, a story from Boccaccio's Decameron. And Chaucer took it and tried to retell it. But Chaucer, uh, Lewis says he medievalized it. He had certain goals, so he's retelling the story, but he's modifying the story to communicate some particular area of interest. So, so consequently, uh, there's embellishment. Lewis writes a book, called The Discarded Image on the Medieval Worldview. And he said one of the characteristics of medieval literature is it's all embellishment. They're drawing on past stories. Um, they're not, they're, the creativity is coming in the retelling of the story with a particular end in mind. They're shaping it, but they're, they're, they're debtors, and they acknowledge their debt. So we have it today. I'm going to name the uh, story, and you tell me what it comes from. West Side Story, Romeo and Juliet, August Rush, huh? Who said it? Well done. Yeah, it's Oliver Twist, and, and the Robin Williams is the Fagin character. It's fa fabulous. But he, but he what? When they tell August Rush, they add that musical element. It's magical. How about Bridget Jones' Diary? Pride and Prejudice. Matter of fact. In the BBC multi, uh, 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 what do they say it when they have a bunch of, huh? Series, a miniseries. Who played Darcy? Colin Firth. Colin Firth. Who plays a character named Darcy in Bridget Jones' Diary? Colin Firth. So the director's hitting us over the head with a two by four saying, This is all I'm doing, I'm embellishing. You know. um, how about The Lion King? Hamlet. Well done, you guys. Prince Caspian. It's Hamlet, too. Lewis uses Hamlet. Till We Have Faces by Lewis. Cupid and Psyche, the Greek myth. How about the great divorce? Lewis is embellishing Dante's Divine Comedy, taking some liberties, of course. How about Inception? The movie? Huh? The movie. It's a myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, how about Lord of the Rings? Um, Tolkien plays off of uh, Plato's The Ring of Gyges, if you've read Herodotus and Plato. And if you haven't, don't beat yourself up, but there's a world out there, people, you can expose yourself to. There's so much good stuff. Don't be intimidated if I refer to it. I'm an old guy. I've been at it for a long time. Not fast, but slowly, enjoying each thing and savoring it as we came across it. So there's an embellishment that comes on. Also, stories, stories teach a kind of morality. What Tolkien calls prohibition. He takes the idea from G.K. Chesterton's orthodoxy, 
If you've ever read that great book, there's a section called The Ethics of Elfland. And in All Things Considered, he writes an essay on fairy stories, and he talks about this moral sense in the fairy story. If you want to be a writer, there should probably be some of this element in your uh, book, but it should not be it should not be coercive. It shouldn't be um, uh, dictatorial. It, was, it should be telling the story. Um, C.S. Lewis said of Dorothy Sayers, she never sunk the artist in the evangelist. She wanted to tell a story well. She wasn't trying to coerce people to faith, but you don't have to coerce people to faith. Tell your story well, and it should have something dripping in it of the presence of God and whatnot. But anyway, this, this thing Tolkien wrote on what, what um, uh, uh, that Chesterton wrote that Tolkien's referring to is he says, all positive joy exists on condition. Cinderella can go to the ball, but she must be back by midnight. Pandora may have the decorated box, but she must not open it. But when she does open it, all the problems of the world escape except one. One thing remains in the box. What is it? Hope. Tells a story with hope, even though it acknowledges this brokenness of our world. Bluebeard's wife can live in the castle, but she must not enter one particular room. Psyche can marry Cupid, but she cannot see his face. The king can invite fairies to the christening of a child, but if he neglects one, frightful results will follow. And then Chesterton says, a man and a woman in a garden can enjoy all of its bounty, but they must not eat from one particular tree. So all of a sudden, morality is told in the story scene. It doesn't mean it can't be told other ways. How does God tell about morality in Exodus 20? Thou shalt not. And he, he says, thou shalt have no other gods before thee. C.S. Lewis's wife, Joy Davidman, understanding this Tolkien, I mean, this Tolkien and, and Chesterton concept, she wrote a book on the Ten Commandments restating everything positively. Thou shalt not, how is it positively stated? Thou shalt have no other gods before thee. Thou shalt have me. You go through all the different things. Thou shalt uh, uh, not bear false witness. Thou shalt be a truth teller. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt learn to do life well with one person. Uh, thou shalt not uh, murder, which means what? Thou shalt be an affirmer of life, not a taker of life. You get to the last one. Thou shalt not covet. What's the positive statement? Be content. Thou shalt be content. And so here these, these very uh, uh, features are told negatively in Exodus 20. That's brilliant but also they could be retold as you embellish the story and retell them in a way that people begin to understand that this morality is really something. So here again, in the prohibition, the, the author is building a fence. All these joys are offered you within the fence. Don't go outside. Because what's outside the fence is to your harm. And you put your nose up against the fence and pine because you can't get to things that will ultimately hurt you and you miss out on turning your back to the fence and seeing the playground that God's defined for you. Help people in your book see the joy and the glory of that sort of thing. Tolkien did this and said, it's significant to the telling of story. 
Uh, stories help us to recover what our excesses have taught us to forget. And that's also important. Uh, then he develops four primary elements of fairy stories. And he calls them fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation. Fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation. So let's dissect these if we might. Fantasy, he says, is awakening desire for other worlds. And, and, and a good writer wants to do that. And it's interesting to me, as they do, when, when a child hears a good story at the end of the day at bedtime, what does a child say after they hear it? Read it again. Read it again. And why do they say that? They know all the twists and turns of plot. All the surprises have been eliminated. But they loved that world. And Lewis says, I think uh, children want to hear it again because they want to go back into that world that's so enjoyed. And Lewis says, I think it touches us at the place where we long for the only other world that we could ever really know, which is heaven. And it awakens in us a kind of heaven desire. We'll talk about that more tonight. To strip a longing for one's true home. So you, you, you've got Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, right? The bottom of a hole that lived a hobbit. And it wasn't a hole with oozy bits of worms. How many of you dug holes when you were kids? Did any of you, I wanted to go to China, and we were working on it. <laughs> and with our neighbor next door, Roger Estes, my two brothers and I, we dug down. We were probably down about 10 feet. You know, and there's the oozy bits of worms. And then we started digging under Roger's garage. And we had no idea about putting supports up. It's, it's a, if any child lives to adulthood, is a testimony to the grace of God. <laughs> and so we, we, we dug down and went eventually retired. I didn't think we would ever really get to China, but it was a goal. But this hobbit hole was not like that kind of hole. It was a hobbit hole. To a hobbit, that meant comfort. He loved his home. Hobbits are perfectly suited for travel. They've got a great constitution. They can walk a long ways. They don't even need shoes because they have leathery bottom feet with hairy tops on their feet. And he's content being in the Shire. And all of a sudden, the wizard Gandalf comes. And he says, there are 13 dwarves whose ancestral home has been taken from them by a dragon named Smog. And they need to go and get their home back. But you can't go on a quest with 13. It's an unlucky number. And Gandalf says, I let you Bilbo Baggins to go with us. He doesn't like to travel. He doesn't want to leave the Shire. But he's co-opted into this trip. If you've read The Hobbit, the first night he has to sleep on hard ground rather than his feathery bed back home. He's longing for his Hobbit hole. When his food becomes stale, he longs for the fresh food in his larder back at his Hobbit hole. First time he encounters a little danger when they come upon the three trolls, William, Tom, and Bert. What, what's Tolkien doing there? I have no clue. He, he, he's got his people named Gandalf, Gladriel, <laughs> Elrond, and so on. And now he's got these three trolls, and he gives them rather pedestrian names like William, Bert, and Tom. If your name's William, Bert, and Tom, please don't think I'm offending you. I'm just saying Tolkien gives them common names. He gives these other names to his characters. But when Bilbo Baggins experiences dangers that he had never known in the Shire, he longs for the relative safety of his hobbit hole. 
18 times in that book, he longs to go home. And when finally the adventures are over and the dwarves have regained their home and the Lakelanders are able to rebuild their home, he comes back and he comes over the hill. He's been gone for a year and he sees before him the Shire. And a poem comes right to his mouth. Roads go ever, ever on over rock and under tree. By caves where never sun, sun has shone, by streams that never find the sea. Over snow by winter sown and through the merry flowers of June, over grass and over stone and under mountains in the moon, roads go ever, ever on, under cloud and under star. Yet feet that wandering have gone turn at last to home afar. I that fire and sword has seen and horror in the halls of stone look at last on meadows green and trees and hills they long have known. So Bilbo gets home. Kind of cool. But the Sackville Bagginses have declared him dead. And they say that he is an imposter and they're taking his stuff and they won't give it back. And what Lewis or what Tolkien does is he shows us that all of the creation of the longing for home that he has built up in that story, in the fantasy, whose primary interest is to awaken longing and desire, he lets the reader know it wasn't that home. What home is it? It's a home that's the only place we'll ever call home permanently. It's a longing for heaven. And Tolkien does a great job in that book of awakening it in us. Now, how about Reepicheep and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader? What does he want to do? He just wants to go to Oslan's country, which he knows is his real country. And he's longing for home. And when you write, remember this. How can you awaken this? Don't manipulate me. Look at your own heart and look what your own longings point to. We'll talk about this more tonight. And write about that. Write about that. And awaken desire in the hearts of your readers. Uh, the second thing is recovery. Recovery. And Tolkien says it's to regain a clear view. To rescue things from the trivialization of familiarity. To see things as they truly are. As things in themselves. As something separate from us. Not something that we're going to try to acquire and hoard. It's something that our own world could enlarge because we see somebody different than us and, and, and so on. Um, we can either be self-referential and utilitarian or self-aware and empathetic towards others to see them. There's a new book that just came out this week by David Brooks. Do you guys know him? The New York Times columnist and, and uh, he's on NPR and so on. And it's on learning to listen to other people, to break out of the dungeon of self and seeing them as they are. There's a, there was a podcast, it was just yesterday, I happened to catch it while I was at the airport. Um, it's Trinity Forum, do you, know, you guys know that? So go to Trinity Forum podcast and, and uh, look at the David Brooks thing. They said they're gonna post it by the day. And you could look at it and see what he's talking about as it relates to seeing things as they truly are rather than how we would have them be. And how Brooks then, in his own writing emphasizes that. Uh, there are lots of examples. Let me, let me provide you a few. There's this wonderful piece by um, George MacDonald 
in the beginning of The Princess and the Goblin. That was a book that was originally written in, in uh, 1871. In 1927, there was a Lippicott edition, and they edited out all the brilliant Christian elements in that book. Um, I, I found out about it because I went and read the original at the Wade Center at Wheaton College. They have the biggest collection of C.S. Lewis material in the world. Can you? When did the original one come? Huh? When did the original one come? 1871. It was from a book called Good Words for the Young. And, and he was a Victorian author. And usually they would serialize their works. I think they would get paid more if they did it that way. You know, every month I'll send them a new thing, they'll give me some money or whatnot. I don't think McDonald was really utilitarian like that, but he did need to feed a very large family. Anyway, in the original, and sometimes you can still find the original out there, but most of them took the route of the Lippincott editing these pieces out. But it's called The Princess and the Goblin. And here's how it starts in the original. Two voices. The author begins to tell the story, and he's interrupted. And I'll do it for you. There once was a little princess who, oh, but Mr. Editor, why do you always write about princesses? Well, because every little girl is a princess. Oh, you'll make them vain if you tell them that. Not if they understand what I mean. Then, then what do you mean by a princess? Well, what do you mean by a princess? Well, I mean the daughter of a king. Very well, then. Every little girl is a princess. And there would be no need to say anything about it except that she's always in danger of forgetting her rank and behaving as if she had grown up out of the mud. And that's why little girls need books about princesses written about them. That's recovery. That's seeing things as they really are. And it's, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, I'll give you another example. There's a book that George MacDonald wrote called Polite Princess. Have any of you read it? Yeah. And, and it's, how many of you read Amelia Bedelia? If you haven't read Amelia Bedelia, Count Your Life is Cheap. <laughs> Such a rich experience as you've missed out on. Amelia Bedelia, she gets everything wrong. It's all these plays on words and stuff. The Light Princess by George MacDonald is Amelia Bedelia on steroids. <laughs> and so it starts out that there's this king and queen. And they're barren. And all the kingdom has brokenhearted about the situation. And all of a sudden, the queen is expecting. And everybody's excited in anticipation of what's to come. She gives birth to a little girl, a princess. And all kinds of people were invited to the christening, but there was somebody who was left out, the king's sister, who has magical powers. And she is so furious that, they, that, the, uh, that she's been overlooked in the uh, invitation. So she comes and she curses the child. How many of you have heard stories like that, right? At the christening, somebody overlooked is cursing. I've often thought to myself, wouldn't it be fun to write a story? I could never write it. So any of you who wants to read this, you can. It might be hard to develop tension in it, but nevertheless, there's this a baby who's born, everybody's excited, and this one woman is left out of the invitations. And when she realizes it, she's so happy because she's been to so many christenings and weddings. <laughs> and finally, she doesn't have to go to one. And so what she does is she sends a blessing by courier takes a cruise to Caribbean. <laughs> and you can talk about the burden of the blessing of that. 
princess, you know, in that book. Go ahead and use it, steal it. It's clear for if you come up with a tiny thing of the royalties and so on. But anyway, so here's this princess, and she's born, and when the woman comes to curse her at the at the at the um, christening, her curse is that this girl will lose all of her gravity. So she begins to float away like a balloon at Disneyland. It's let go up. And they have to tether her. They have to watch her like a hawk. And as she grows, she can't be serious about anything because she's lost all of her gravity. And she's just, she's just, I don't know, airhead. <laughs> And the king and queen are deeply concerned, you know. Sometimes she'll be bouncing along the roof in the castle and they're worried she might go out a window. They'll never see her again. And there's a prince. He's from a distant land. It's often a prince who comes from another world or another land who's going to break the curse. The prince is riding his horse into this kingdom. And there's a lake out in front of the castle. And the only place where the princess can approximate normality is if she goes in the lake. Because the, the, uh, just as we become more buoyant in water, she becomes a little more heavy in water. And he sees her, and he's stricken by her beauty. And so he tethers his horse, and he jumps in, and he swims with her. And he's not in any way uh, disappointed by her beauty, but he recognizes that there's sort of a problem here. She can't be serious about him. He's intrigued. So he ends up going to the castle to see if he could get a job in the castle under disguise, incognito. And there's an opportunity for him to be a boot black at the castle and polish people's boots. I think McDonald used that uh, employment because it's the closest thing he could put in there to washing feet. And so here's the prince, and he spends time with the princess when he's off work, and they swim in this pond. And the evil aunt sees her niece enjoying herself, and this was not her intention at all. So she goes underneath the pond with this massive snake, and she wedges out a rock as the as the tunnels underneath the, the uh, pond are there and wedges out this rock, puts the snake's um, uh, mouth up by where the rock was, and the snake begins to suck, and all of a sudden, the lake crashes through, and it starts going there, and because the witch was so mad, she wasn't thinking about what the outcome would be. She's killed, the snake is killed, and so on. But the pond begins to subside. And as it subsides, the princess starts to get ill. She's still giddy. She's still, this is the thing, but she's, she's sick, clearly sick. And they find a bronze plaque where the water has gone down. And it says, when the water leaves the pond, the princess will die. And the only way to keep the water from leaving the pond is you have to find a person who will voluntarily put themselves in the hole as a cork and stop the leak, which means that the person who's the court will die. So the king and queen are deeply concerned, and the prince goes, still in disguise, goes to the king. He said, I'm willing to volunteer to be your court on condition 
king says, what do you mean giving conditions to a king? I should just stuff you in there. And the prince says, that wouldn't help because it says they have to volunteer. I've never seen too many people lining up for this job. King said, what's the condition? He says, you have to have the princess on a barge next to me the whole time. And I need her to give me bread when I'm hungry and wine when I'm thirsty. And when the water covers me, we're done. And so they do this. And he wedges himself into the hole. And he looks at her, constantly looks at her. And she's just giddy. She's like, what are you doing there? We could be out swimming, you know? Why don't you get out of the thing? Let's go swim. Let's go play. Come on. And, and he looks at her and he says, may I have a piece of bread? She breaks off a piece of bread and reaches with his neck, even though his arms are pushed in the hole, reaches with his neck to try and kiss her hand. She pulls it away. I have a sip of wine. She holds the thing close to his lips and he drinks. And the water keeps rising. It comes to his chin. She looks at him finally. She notices his condition. Very unlike her. And she says, you, you, you need to get out of that hole. That won't be good for you. You need to get out of the hole. And the water goes up to his mouth. He puts his head back, can't take his eyes off of her. Covers up his nose and bubbles come floating up from his nose. And she says, you've got to get out of there. This is not good. You've got to get out of there. She will never weigh until she can cry. And all of a sudden, she sees her prince buried in the water and she begins to weep. And all of a sudden, the cloud breaks and the rain comes down and that pond starts and she finds herself walking in the shallow pond. Not very well because she's never done it before. And she starts pulling him out. And she drags him over to the castle and lo and behold, they're able to revive him. And then you know how that's going to end, right? They end up marrying. Living happily ever after. And here's how MacDonald ends that story. So the prince and princess lived happy and had crowns of gold and clothes of cloth and shoes of leather and children of boys and girls. Well, the crowns of gold, that's not like us. But the clothes of cloth, we know what that's like. And the shoes of leather and the children of boys and girls, we enter into that. Instead of saying they lived happily ever after, MacDonald turns to the crowns of gold and clothes of cloth he, he talks about the things that queens and common folk can both have because the rest is clothes of cloth, shoes of leather, children of boys and girls, all living normally with one great and wonderful fact. There was one willing to offer up his life to make it happen. And what do we have in that story at that moment? We have recovery. We have recovery. I'm, I'm going I'm to embellish this a little bit. Years ago, I joined Book of the Month Club. Did you guys ever join it in your life? And you pay a few bucks, and they send you a bunch of books, and you have to pay a million dollars per book to order after that. <laughs> they get you sucked into the vortex of this thing. But they send me a book when I order it. I would, a book I would have never ordered myself. It was called um, Common Courtesy, Miss Manners Solves a Problem that Baffled Mr. Jefferson. And it was written by Judith Martin. Do you know who she was? She was the etiquette columnist. Um, named Miss Manners. I don't know if you remember her, her articles. I would read them. I thought they were theologically profound. I don't know if she was a believer even, but they were insightful. 
And this book was a lecture she gave at Harvard University. She was the first person to lecture on etiquette at Harvard since Cotton Mather in the 1600s. And the problem that she was trying to solve that baffled Mr. Jefferson is when America became a country, Jefferson thought in an egalitarian country, we would just be kind to each other. And in Europe, people knew exactly where they were in the structure. You, you treated the people above you with respect. You treated the people beneath you as servile. And Jefferson thought we'd just do it all right. But instead he found in America, people were saying, well, you're no better than I am. And we were treating each other horribly. And he's going, how do you have etiquette in an egalitarian culture? So Miss Manners is trying to solve the problem. She said, well, we've come up with other artificialities. We'll do it based on appearance. Say. My wife is drop-dead gorgeous. Jeff, you know Claudia. She's drop-dead gorgeous. I was only able to marry her because she was legally blind when I met her. She was 2200. The darkest day of her marriage when she had LASIK surgery and got her eyes fixed, but it was 20 years into it. She couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> but when she, she sometimes would put the pedal to the metal and drive a little bit incautiously, and she'd get pulled over by the police. There were times when the policeman would say, um, is it Mrs. Root or Miss Root? Is there a Mr. Root? I have lunch free this afternoon. She'd get asked out for lunch. You know what happens to the bald, fat, bearded, bespectacled guy when he gets pulled over? I got a ticket once for doing 31 and a 30. And we treat people differently based on how they look. And those of us that don't look so good, well, you know, we see that. Miss Nanners said, we've gone to uh, respect by virtue of appearance, or respect by virtue of money. The money person gets treated better. Or athletic ability. I have a friend who was a starting tight end for the San Francisco 49ers, and Joe Montana was a quarterback. He has a Super Bowl ring. He puts a pedal to the metal. When he gets pulled over, he looks in the mirror, which side's the cop that he come to, and he pulls out a Super Bowl ring and puts it on that hand. And he asks for his license. He gives it to him with all the blame. And the guy goes, is that a Super Bowl ring, Mr. Heller? Which one did you play in? I was with Joe Montana, you know, and he said, and he's, the police will say, well, what was Jerry Rice really like? Oh, he's a principal guy. Ronnie Rock, too, was another criminal. You should have known him. And the guy says, Mr. Heller, may I have your autograph? It's for my son, you know, but could I have your autograph? He never gets tickets. <laughs> How do you come up with an etiquette? And this manners doesn't solve the problem. And basically, we know how the problem is solved. The high courtesy of heaven from the cross, what did Jesus say? Uh, for my life, for you. You matter. You're made in the image of God. I have made you, and you matter. And the gifts you have, and the abilities you have, and the liabilities you have. You're all part of my purpose for you. You matter. The common courtesy. And we need to recover that side. And Lewis and Tolkien say story should help us recover. The people matter. Okay, so we're supposed to go to lunch, but you guys have been sitting for a long time, and the mind can't absorb more than the seat can absorb. So we're going to take a five-minute break. And you come right back, and we're going to get on to finishing what Tolkien has to say. All right? Five minutes. Hey, 
go ahead and put that in the circle of wagons. And uh, let's go ahead and move to the next area. We've got embellishments, we've got prohibitions, we've got um, embellishments, prohibitions, we've got fantasy, we've got recovery. In the next area that Tolkien writes about his escape, and Lewis says some very significant things on this. Do you, do you guys know his late literary critical work, um, um, Experiment and Criticism, and Experiment and Criticism? It's a very good book to read. It's very short, and it's his mature literary critical work. He has a whole section in there on escape, this new area that we're going to talk about. He has a section on fantasy in that book as well. You can see the reverberating and the cross-pollinating that went on with Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, recover, uh, excuse me, escape. Lewis and Tolkien insist that a distinction must be made in literature between the escape of the deserter and the escape of the prisoner. We should never fault the prisoner if they want to get out of their four cells. The deserter, on the other hand, that's terrible. They want to get out of responsibility. And some people think that Fantasy literature is escapist literature. And Lewis wants to draw the line and say that's absolutely false. And people who suggest that haven't thought deeply about why escape is so important. We live in a very materialistic world that is suppressing our understanding of the transcendent and the eternal. And, and it's tragic. Um, I, I remember years ago being in... Uh, Colorado Springs, and there is a chuck wagon place there called um, the Flying W Ranch. Have any of you ever been there before? Flying W Ranch. There's one also in uh, uh, Durango, Colorado, called the Flying J Ranch, and they're both owned by the same people. At least they were, and they were Christians. And they will bring in in an evening about 1,000, 1,200 people to have a chuck wagon dinner. And you're paying big bucks for this. They have a little little section that's not quite as grand, but a little bit like the, the uh, ghost town section of Knott's Berry Farm. You can walk around while you're waiting for everybody to show up so you can start dinner. You go in and you sit down, and you're sitting at picnic tables, and there's uh, ranch hands, actual ranch hands, who are going to entertain you. And so there's a little in this corner, a little stage. They're going to entertain you after the dinner. But they get up and they say, welcome to the Flying W Ranch. We're real ranchers, and we're glad you could be here to eat with us. But we know where we come from. And that's why we're going to pray before we eat. So please bow your head. You just paid like 25, 30 bucks for this dinner, and these cowboys are telling you to bow your head and pray. And nobody refuses to bow your head. Nobody you ever going to pray. And they pray, and you go through the chuck wagon, you get your food, you know, some beef, some baked beans, a string of corn, some potatoes, and so on. And you eat your dinner, and then they do a show. They're pretty good with their music. And Wesley is the guy that's always the brunt of all the jokes. And the guy who's the uh, foreman, he's telling these stories, and he says, you know, we were supposed to go out and do some fencing in the lower 40. And I'm talking to the boss about this. And, and he keeps yelling out the window, green side up. And he's talking to me a little bit more. 
And he yells at the word, green side up. Talking to me a little bit more. He yells out again, green side up. And I said, boss, 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 why do you keep yelling out the window, green side up? He said, oh, we got Wesley out there. And he said, I didn't saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Escape in literature is green side up. In the material world, we have it all backwards. We think that which is empirical and tangible is all we have. I'll talk about that a little bit more tonight. But nevertheless, escape helps us to see the world as it is and to escape out of this misinformation that is constantly bombarding us. How many of you hear in the news that, that the church is falling apart and everybody's leaving the church and people aren't interested in spiritual things? I, I have conversations constantly, every day, with people who either do know Jesus and we bump into each other and I always am looking for where is it in the conversation that something spiritual is percolating? And how might I then enjoy a conversation with them? I don't know how many people I've led to Christ this way. It's been fun. But, but also, the people who aren't Christians, I'm amazed how many of them are spiritually hungry and searching. But we've got a media. This, this David Brooks, who wrote this one article, he gave a lecture at Wheaton several years ago. He, he wasn't a Christian when he gave the lecture. He's since become a Christian. And, and, and he said that um, the media doesn't know what to do with faith. The farmer has his farmer uh, blown down by a tornado in I Iowa. And the news guy comes up to the, to the farmer and says, how are you getting by given this tragedy? And sticks a microphone in his face. And he says, you know, I, I don't think I could get by if I didn't have my faith in Jesus. And the reporter will then go, yeah, but how are you getting by? And he doesn't hear it coming in, and it's filtered going out. And Brooks was commenting on that. The media doesn't know what to do with religion. There are some strong Christians in the media, too. Don't make a sweeping judgment about a class of people, because you're wrong. It's complex. Groups of people are complex. You'll find all kinds of people in the gathering. But you might find that, by and large, that looking at the particulars and abstracting, you might find there's a generalization that has merit, but be careful pressing it too hard. But nevertheless, we need to escape. We need to escape this press on culture that these things don't matter, when in reality, they are the one thing that ultimately matters. So here's Lewis on escape. This is from his book of Other Worlds, and it's from the essay on three ways of writing for children. About every hundred years, some wiseacre gets up and tries to banish the fairy tale. Perhaps I'd better say a few words in its defense as reading for children. It is accused of giving children a false impression of the world they live in. But I think no literature that children can read gives them less of a false impression. I think what profess to be realistic stories for children are far more likely to deceive them. I never expected the real world to be like the fairy tales. I think I did expect school to be like the school stories. The fantasies did not deceive me, the school stories did. All stories in which children have adventures and successes, which are possible in the sense that they do not break the laws of nature, but almost infinitely improbable, are more dangerous than the fairy tales of raising false expectations. Do fairy tales teach children to retreat into a world of wish fulfillment fantasy? In the technical, psychological sense of the word? instead of facing the problems of the real world? Now here it is that the problem becomes subtle. Let us lay again the fairy tale 
side by side with the school story or any other story which is labeled a boy's book or a girl's book as distinct from a children's book. There is no doubt that both arouse and imaginatively satisfy wishes. We long to go through the looking glass to reach fairyland. We also long to be the immensely popular and successful schoolboy or schoolgirl, or the lucky boy or girl who discovers a spy's plot or rides a horse that none of the cowboys could handle. But the two longings are very different. The second, especially when directed on something so close to school life, is ravenous and deadly serious. Its fulfillment on the level of imagination is in very truth compensatory. We run to it from the disappointments and humiliations of the real world and send us back to the real world undivinely discontented. For it is all flattery to the ego. The pleasure consists in picturing oneself the object of admiration. The other longing that for fairyland is very different. In a sense, a child does not long for fairyland as a boy longs to be the hero of the first eleven. Does anyone suppose that he really and prosaically longs for all the dangers and discomforts of a fairy tale? Really wants dragons in contemporary England? It's not so. It'd be much truer to say that fairyland arouses a longing for he knows not what. It stirs and troubles him to his lifelong enrichment with the dim sense of something beyond his reach and far from dullying or emptying the actual world, it gives it a new dimension of death. He does not despise real woods because he has read of enchanted woods. The reading makes all real woods a little enchanted. This is a special kind of longing. The boy reading the school story of the type I have in mind desires success and is unhappy once the book is over because he can't get it. The boy reading the fairy tale desires and is happy of the very fact of desiring, for his mind has not been concentrated on himself as it often is in the more realistic stories. The real victim of wishful reverie does not batten on the odyssey, the tempest, or the war more forest. He or she prefers stories about millionaires, irresistible beauties, posh hotels, palm beaches of bedroom scenes, things that really might happen, that ought to happen, that would have happened if the reader had had a fair chance. For as I say, there are two kinds of longing. The one is a spiritual exercise, and the other is a disease. And the escape brings us to the place where we see things as they are, rather than how we would have to have them be. Now, but sometimes it's always good to ask yourself, why do you have to have it be that way? The escape then takes us to the place where we could connect with the supernatural, where that which is um, gospel-oriented even begins to break in where we become born again and we start to live this adventure of not weighing in at our spiritual birth weight. How many of you have met people before that, that they were born again, but you don't think that they've matured much since then? You know, my, my oldest son was nine pounds, four ounces when he was born. I was happy. I thought the Rams were going to come give him a contract the next day. My, my wife wasn't quite as excited. He was but how would it be if Jeremy now, 44 years old, was still weighing in at 9 pounds, 4 ounces? And how many Christians, tragically, are still weighing in at the same weight? Because they haven't broken out of the dungeon of self and seen the, the wider world and haven't connected with what the gospel means is it's played out in our lives and we begin to live in the fruit of it and also in the example of it as we seek to go and engage in mission 
all things for Christ's kingdom. So in, in, in light of this too, um, I, I would say that um, there's a great passage in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know about you, but I think that's my favorite of the Narnia books. I don't know, maybe the horse in this boy too. But um, In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you've got uh, two things going on, actually three big things going on. The transformation, of course, of Eustace Claret Scrub. There once was a boy named Eustace Claret Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Written by Clive <laughs> Staples Lewis, and nobody deserved to be named that. And then you've got the story of King Caspian now, going to try to find what happened to the seven lost lords of Narnia who went out and never came back. And then read the chief, the most chivalrous mouse in Narnia <laughs> history, who has this longing from something that was pronounced on him at his birth that he would one day go to Ozon's country and he longs to go. And so the ship is engaged in this pilgrimage. Sort of Lewis's um, odyssey, you know, Ulysses' odyssey. And they come to this island, and it's the island of the voices. And, and, and the people, they can hear them talk, but they can't see them. And, and they've got spears, and they can feel the point of their spear. They don't know where it's coming from. They're nonsensical, and they're so contradictory and so full of foolishness. And, and, and yet they've got the Don Treader crew and, and, and the passengers at, at their will's interest. And so finally they find out that they have been put under a spell and made invisible by the magician of that island. And the only way they could be made whole and full is if a girl will go into the magician's house and read the spell from the Book of Spells. There's only one girl in the Don Treader. And that's Lucy, the most spiritually sensitive person from our world, to go to Narnia. And she courageously volunteers to go and read the spell. And they tell her where the spell is. It's on the second floor of that house, up a winding staircase in the library. And they have this sort of lectern there, and there's the book. And it's a massive book. She tries to open it. She can't. She realizes there's a clasp on it. So she undoes it, and she opens the book. She says, it had a nice smell. And when you touched it, it kind of tingled your fingers. And it was written with thick downstrokes, thin upstrokes, calligraphy. And it's illuminated margins. And she noticed that in the illumination, there was animation. And whatever the book was writing about, it was animated in the margin. She doesn't know how, where the spell is for making things visible. And she realizes that... that that she's going to maybe be there for hours. So she starts reading it, turning the pages one at a time. There's a spell for how to make it rain after a drought, how to make it stop raining after a long rain. Uh, there's a spell for how to remove a wart with a silver bowl full of water and a silver thread on a full moon night. There, there's a spell for, for um, how to remove... A, 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 a hive of bees from a tree. And here she sees there's a man who's removing the hive of bees in the margin. And then she comes to the spell, how to make one more beautiful than the lot of mortals. 
She, she was the less comely of the two Pevensey sisters. Everybody was interested in Susan, and they weren't necessarily so interested in Lucy. And while she starts to read the spell, she sees in the margin that everybody's looking at a little girl who looks like Susan. And there's a girl in the margin who's standing on a little step stool in front of a platform reading a book. And she sees the girl in the margin reading and saying a spell, and all of a sudden, everybody stops looking at the Susan-looking girl, and they all turn their attention to Lucy. And people start to fight for her honor. And armies are deployed, and ships are launched. And it's like Helen of Troy. And she goes, I'm going to say that spell. And just then, the face of Aslan comes out of the page and prevents her. She turns the page. And the next spell is how to listen in to what your friends are saying about you when you're not there. And so, have you ever had a thing where you were tempted and not by any cleverness of your own, you somehow escaped that temptation? And so now you feel like you deserve this next one? And so she just rushes in and says the spell. And all of a sudden, she's clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clack. It's a train. And there's a train car. And her arch enemy at school is in that train car. And she's goading one of her close friends from school to say something nasty about Lucy. And the other girl resists and resists and resists, but eventually is worn down. And she says something sad about Lucy. And Lucy just bursts into tears and she's screaming at the book. And she's so upset. She turns the page. And the next spell is for the refreshment of the spirit. And Lucy said it went on for three pages. And when she got to the end, she said, that was so good, I need to read it again. But with that spell, you can only go forward. All the words started to disappear on the page. You can only go forward, you can't go back. And she says, oh dear, what was that spell about? She says, oh yeah, it was about a cup and a sword and a green hill and a tree. And it went on for three pages. And from that day on, Whenever Lucy thought of a good story, it was a story that reminded her of the story in the magician's book. Comes the next page. How to make things visible that have been invisible. And she utters it. And as soon as she utters it, Oslan's standing next to her. And he says, Oslan, how did you get here? How did you get here? Oh, I've been here all along, dear heart. Did you think I wouldn't obey my own rules? He says, you've been listening in in places where you shouldn't have listened. He says, oh, Aslan, what would have happened if I wouldn't have done that? Would it ever get better? Nobody, dear heart, has ever told what might have happened. But everybody could find out what will happen. But for now, let's go meet the master of this house. What were those four spells? The first spell was the spell of the fall that we all participated in. We played God of our own life and tried to assert ourselves against everybody else. The second spell was Lucy's participation in that, just as we have all participated in it in a less grand way than what happened in the Garden of Eden. But we've all had that place where we decided our will was to prevail. The third spell was the gospel story. 
by the cup that Jesus drank, the sword of the death that he died, the green hill Calvary and the tree, the cross, goes on for three pages. You can only go forward from that one. And the next step, make one visible, that's the whole sanctifying life as we begin to grow and build on what God has given us in Christ. And we go to that passage and we experience escape. We break out of the self-referentialism of the fall and our participation in the fall. And we have the hope that things could get better and we can grow and be transformed. The last, the last area, the last um, of these four areas, fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation. Consolation is the idea of hope. Uh, if you write a tragedy, there's got to be tragedy. If you write a fairy story, it has to end in hope. We all know the story, and they all lived happily ever after. That's a characteristic of this genre. But Tolkien calls it the eucatastrophe. It's not denying that catastrophes happen and that tragedies occur, but it's helping us not to be universally devastated by the tragedy. The fairy story is not a Thomas Hardy novel. Okay, So consequently... He uses the term eucatastrophe, the catastrophe that comes about to good end. Tolkien said the eucatastrophe of the fall was the incarnation, or not abandoned. The eucatastrophe of the crucifixion was the resurrection. The eucatastrophe of human history is the coming of the kingdom of God. It's the joy of the happy ending. It's infused with hope. So, you have Narnia, and, and we're talking about uh, Narnia and, and other worlds. You have in Narnia this understanding that, that Aslan is really big. Lucy, when she goes back to Narnia on her second trip in Prince Caspian, and she sees Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion of Narnia, for the first time on that second visit, she exclaims, Aslan, you're bigger. He says, no, child, I am not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. I'll mention that again tonight. And so we begin to see something about Jesus depicted in Aslan. We'll talk more about that tonight as well. But not only that, we, we, we begin to see something about Christ, something about our world, Unless we miss it, at the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy, who has observed her older siblings, Susan and Peter, be told at the end of Prince Caspian, they can never come back to Narnia. Lucy has an inkling that maybe that's in her future as well. She lives to a degree of anxiety about it. She doesn't want that day to ever come. At the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Oslan said, you're growing older, dear heart. It's time you become acclimated to your world. And you won't be coming back to Narnia again. Oh, she weeps and weeps and weeps. Oh, Aslan, Aslan, it's, it's, it's not Narnia, you know. It's you. It's you. How can I go on living if I can't encounter you again? And what does he say to her? Oh, dear heart, I live in your world too. But you have been brought here for a while that knowing me here, you might know me better there. And as you literary artists are writing, 
You want to write in such a way that the people who read your books will encounter some quality. There's, there's those adjectives again. Have some experience in that book that creates in them a thirst that will not be satisfied with anything less than the majesty and the wonder and the glory of God. He tells her that he lives in her world too, but there he goes by a different name. And now she's brought to Narnia in the hopes of knowing him there for a time. She might come to know him better in her world. Well, that's it. I, ha I have something else I could say, but let's open it up for a little Q&A. It's too late for business. What did you say was the opposite of escape when you were talking about the man in the prison cell? I missed the... Well, the one is the, the uh, exercise of self. And the other is, is the, uh, uh, the focus on self versus the focus on something bigger that transcends self. So you have the escape of the prisoner, which is the positive one, versus the escape of the disorder. By the way, I meant to do this when we first came in. Lori had something that she showed me at the break that I thought she's going to take about 20 seconds here. So the National Archives, the United States government, has a thing called internetarchive.org. And as he was mentioning the different books, The Princess and the Goblin, I was looking them up. And they're on there in their, we think, their original form. Uh, and they're all free. So you just go, you make an account, and you can download any old books. Um, they, they love all the public domain. There's tons of stuff printed before 1900, um, and it's all free. He said free is her favorite four letter word. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the second? Internetarchive.org. Internetarchive.org. Yeah. That's a good site. You know the site too? Who said it's a good site? I didn't. Oh. <laughs> any, any other questions? I'll save one last illustration when the Q&As are over. I'm confident there's some budding Tolkien's and Dorothy Sayers's and Lewis's and D.K. Chesterton's in this group. Madeline Langle's in this group. Oh, we got a question, yeah. First name again? Uh, my name's Claire. Claire? Yeah. Jerry, what's your personal name? What's your say, personal say it again. I have three names, but my name is What's your favorite word? Whichever one I'm reading at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, I've read the book. There's 73 books. Oh, I've read them all over and over again, even that big, thick one. You know, by the way, don't be intimidated by English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama, which he wrote for the Oxford History of English Literature. It took him 18 years, so he called his Oh Hell volume, Oxford History of English Literature. <laughs> <laughs> but you read that, and it's so insightful, and you catch yourself telling about them, truly. Writes with such winsomeness and so on. Norbert Cantor, who taught medieval literature at Columbia University and Ivy League University, wrote a book called Re Reimagining the Middle Ages. And he looks at 20, 20th century medieval scholars and he says, hands down, the two best were Lewis and Tolkien. It's interesting, huh? And the book that establishes literary reputation is The Allegory of Love. 
And it's really interesting, he started before he's a Christian, finishes it while he's a Christian. But the whole book is pointing us towards a Christian ideal of marriage. It's fabulous. <coughs> so, yes. Do you have a, do you have did a, I answer your question? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Asher. Do you have a least favorite work by C.S. Lewis? Um, you know what? I'm not a big fan of C.K. Brothers. I feel bad about this. I've given lectures on C.K. all over the world, yeah, and, and even Google. I, I, I'm not very techno-savvy like you are. I think I'm borderline dyslexic because I only recently learned the nose switch on my computer and my phone. But, but I've given lectures on Lewis all over, over the world, and people videotape them, and the next thing I know, they're up someplace. I was at my best friend's house. His daughter was watching TV. I go, what? Where is that? What the fuck's that mean? And, and it was. It was a YouTube video or something. And I said, how many of those are out there? And I started scrolling through them. It was stopped at 220. They're out there. But I've done screw tape letters lectures several places, and they're out there. And, and I just get weary of it. Lewis himself got weary of it. You know, he said exploring his brokenness and his fallenness eventually is, 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 uh, it just gets old. Mm -hmm. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's not, it's probably not my favorite. It's the one that got him on the cover of Time Magazine. Yeah. 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 September 8th, 1947. Was it September 7th, 1948? I can't remember. Mm -hmm. But you can sometimes go online and get a copy of that magazine. When I first got it, I saw it and there were three copies. And I paid like three dollars each for that. So I bought them and then gave them to three friends, and I didn't find another one for 15 years. And the next time I found one, it was like 35, 40 dollars. So if you find one, you know you might want it, and, you know, give it to somebody. I don't know about you guys, but I have this theory that if I can't give something away, I don't own it. It owns me. So I've had untold numbers of books signed by Lewis, Chesterton, Tolkien, Charles Williams. Letters and stuff like that. I don't own any of them anymore. And I have double glory, the glory when I bought it and the glory when I gave it away. But if, did I give you something? I haven't found it in probably 20 years ago. I still use it. You were writing down something in a pen. We started talking about fountain pens. And he capped it and handed it to me. And I use it to this day. So if you see him use anything, ask for it. <laughs> something that's one of my marked CS lists but they won't give that away because it's my tools. But I would be more likely to give them a first edition CS list. But if it has any real content in it, I, I give it to the weights in it so researchers could find it. And I'll tell you a quick story about that. When I did my PhD, again, I, I'm, I wasn't academically inclined. I've become, but it wasn't my natural proclivity. I was an athlete. You have to take it by faith now, but I was an athlete. <laughs> and, and, um, when I was working on my doctorate, I had to do it part-time, and I did it in England, and I did it in the Open University, but my first supervisor was Basil Mitchell at, at um, Oriel College, Oxford, and, and he was a vice president of the Socratic Club, and Lewis was a president. He would meet every week with Lewis during term. He was a brilliant guy, and I learned so much from him. But there was a proctoring group I had to go to, and they made life difficult for me. In England, if you do a doctorate, only 25% of the people who start the process even finish. 
Um, sometimes there's some residency uh, flexibility, which makes it attractive. But when you see how how you know difficult it is, it's kind of frustrating. And also, when you do your doctorate in England, you are examined by two people. Um, most often, they both have nothing to do with you. You've never met them. So if you don't pass muster with them, you're out. But sometimes you'll have one who is in your supervising group who, who will be there and with one person you've never met, and that person has 51% of your pass or fail. Eight years into it, or, or excuse me, six years into it, I went to one of these guys in the, in the proctoring group, and I said, do you think I'm going to have troubles with this in my thesis? I was writing it. And he said, no, 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 don't, don't even worry about that. Just press on, press on. So I went and submitted my thesis, and I went to defend it after eight years. And I, I, I have a tendency to lean in when I'm talking to somebody. And, and I started these seminars, and these people, when I first started out, were just trashing my work. And I go, wow, probably pretty bad. I've never done this sort of thing before, you know, and so you're getting beat up. And the next year they start trashing your work and you, you're, you're immersed in it. And you say, I think I know about this better than that person. And, and I don't like what they're doing to me. The third year, you're going to them and you're saying, I can't let these guys bully me because I'm going to end up turning in a thesis that would never pass by anybody who knows the subject. So I just got after them, went after them. And they said to me, you're obnoxious. <laughs> and I go, okay, I got to enter into this and learn the game. I've got to learn how to make my point without being obnoxious but not being bullied. And so what I discovered was, don't lean forward, lean back. Just lean back. And then I also discovered, repeat back to them what they said. So you know you heard them. And then say, you know what? That makes a boatload of sense to me, given A, B, and C. But I didn't see anything in what you said that had respect for X, Y, and Z. And that's also part of my spectrum on this whole subject. So maybe you can help me see your point of view given this other stuff. And all of a sudden, people would calm down. So I go in to make my defense. And I don't know the one guy who's the external guy, but the internal guy was that guy I asked for this to be a problem for me. And when I walk in, you find some typos in your dissertation, and you bring them in and you say, I found some mistakes here. Because what they can do for you when you finish, if you pass, they'll say, could you take care of these typos before you turn it into the British Library? And then they'll say, um, maybe that's not it. Maybe, maybe they pass you. Maybe they say, take care of these typos. Maybe they say, you've got to revise a couple sections here. Or maybe they say, it needs major revision. Or maybe they say, actually, you don't pass. We're washing you out, and you can have an M lit. You see somebody with an M lit after their name? That's a person who didn't finish their doctorate. Or Cambridge or whatever. So I go in and I, I push across the table. Here's some mistakes I found in my thesis. And the, that supervisor, not supervisor, examiner from us says, Sit down! We found plenty of mistakes in your thesis. Now sit down! I got a bone to pick with you. And he starts going after me. Don't remember getting prepared for this one. I remember the course. Maybe you teach courses like that. So I, I lean back against the chair. I said, 
I hear what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense to me, given X, Y, and Z. I didn't hear anything about A, B, and C. 20 minutes it took to get that answer. And he said, that, that, okay, okay, I have another question for you. And I realized what he was doing was a strategy to knock me off balance and see if I could still give him the answers. So I give him the second answer. And he says, okay, now calm voice. He asks a third question. The second guy, the internal guy, he asks me a question. I answer it. And then he asks a second question, and he asks the same question the first, that he asked the first time. And the external examiner said, had to say, he already answered that question, move on to the next question. I'm going, what is that about? You know, they're, they're, all of us are broken. All of us are dysfunctional and limp. But there's nobody worse than an academic, <laughs> hyper-academic <laughs> dysfunction, you know? So anyway, because they're clever about it. So anyway, um, I go through the three questions, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I know I've given good answers. And then they say, we have one more question for you. And it was the question I'd asked that other guy about two years earlier. And I think the external examiner saw it, and the internal examiner didn't have the guts to tell him. I told Jerry, you didn't have to worry about that. They threw me under the bus. And they said, you don't pass. And you can go back, instead of washing you out of the system, you can go back and rewrite your thesis. And I'm just beside myself. And it was tough. So then the next year I get cancer. And I think, well, if I'm going to die, I don't think I want to spend my time this way. Spend my time with my family. Then I get better, and then I think, oh, I've got to finish this. <laughs> <laughs> and finally I go in. I go in to do my defense, my second run. And I walk in, and the guy that screamed at me the first time, he says, I'm going to do something I've never done before. And I thought, oh, so I just going to show me the door. And he said, I've examined over 80 dissertations. It's the first time I've ever done this. You passed. <laughs> I didn't even have to make a defense. And then he said, this is the best thing I've learned on C.S. Lewis, but I want to ask you some questions while you made the changes you did. Let's just have a little chat. Oh, by the way, he said you passed. And I said, what, what? Yeah. And tears are coming to my eyes. And he said, you passed. And he said, now, Dr. Groot, he called me Dr. Groot. We had the little chat, and I walked out. I have to say, I didn't have joy about doing that exercise as a doctor over a 10-year period for at least two years till after it was over. It was tough. But the next day, I went with one of my other supervisors, and we went book hunting in um, London. And a friend of mine who was a pastor of the International Church in London went with us, the three of us. And we walked into this one old used bookstore, mostly with children's books. And so the one guy says, do you have any C.S. Lewis books? Well, now I can't ask for those, because he asked for them. The other guy said, do you have any Tolkien books? I go. I can't ask for that either. This is this is a horrible process I just went through for 10 years and now I'm getting beat up. <laughs> so I said to him, do you have any George MacDonald books? And the guy said, actually, I have a George MacDonald book. A second edition of Diary of an Old Soul that he signed to his sister-in-law. In the time his sister-in-law was going through some dark times, and there's an unpublished poem in George MacDonald's hand written in that book. And this is the poem. 
Go not forth to call thy sorrow from the dim fields of tomorrow. Let her roam there all unheeded. She will come when she is needed. But when she arrives at thy door, she will find God there before. I go, what do you want for this book? They said 450 pounds. It was 20 years ago. I don't know if I would buy it now. And I said, I'll buy it. And I bought it and gave it to the Wade Center because that poem needs to be there. But it came to me at a time I needed to hear that poem. And I was overwhelmed. So McDonald filled it out for his sister-in-law. She had it on her bookshelf. When she died, maybe the family sold it or maybe it went to another generation. It's been floating around some bookstores until the moment that I, the day after that, needed to hear that. Is that cool or what? Any other questions? If not, I got one last sure. illustration. Yes, sir. Tim, my dear, dear friend Tim and Dana, his wonderful, <laughs> hospitable wife. Oh, that's really a joy. Uh, along with Jeff, he got a pen, and I'll never forget the time he gave me this cap right here. And I just said, wow, that's a cool cap. And he's like, here it's yours. He always wanted to give it back to me, he insisted that I take it. Is that the CS Lewis you have from Belfast? Well, Eric has one of those. How come he didn't give me one? You beat me to it. You beat me to it. Oh, there you go. I Takeaway was to walk away from that book, and periodically when I read 
What am I holding on to for? It's distracting me from the fullness of joy that can be found in you. You got that? Okay. Um, the last thing I'll say then is this, because um, I didn't realize, I thought we would be done sooner, and so I pulled out, uh, because you said that maybe we would go a little longer, and I thought, oh my, what will I put on there? Okay, so I want to show you how this stuff can work in writing. When you write fantasy, you want to be informed by lots of stuff, and fantasy will just be a thread in the fabric, the glorious fabric of who you are. Okay? When you engage in any artistic endeavor, that will be so. But Lewis wrote a book, his, his best books, nobody reads them, are his literary critical works. Um, a friend of mine and I put out a book called The Neglected C.S. Lewis, and we talked about the books nobody reads. And we should have been thinking, if nobody reads those books, they're not going to read our books. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was an economic disaster. I got good reviews and stuff, but again, well, anyway. So, so um, he wrote a book called The Discarded Image. And they were lectures he gave at Oxford University are called his Prolegomena Lectures to Medieval Literature. Have you read it? Or you went like this? Oh, I have hiccups. I wish I did so I could. I, I, I said the name of the book and she goes, Oh, I touched something. So, anyway, it was Prolegomena Lectures to Medieval Literature. He gave at Oxford University for 29 years, and he also gave them at Cambridge when he went to Cambridge. And if you read a medieval book, your tendency will be to project 21st century values on that book, and you're not getting what the author said. You need to see the book for what it is, so he's giving this background. And he said the most influential book on medieval literature, bar nothing, is the Bible. But second was Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy. And he said it was the most influential book on medieval literature, and up till 150 years ago, which would have been about then 200 years ago, judging on the time he wrote the book, a person wasn't considered educated if they didn't know Boethius. I've never heard of him before. And I'm thinking, well, I guess I'm uneducated doofus. <laughs> I go to a bookstore and I say, do you happen to have Boethius, Consolation of Philosophy? They go, oh, yeah, it's right here. I'm thinking, who in our world is writing that 1,500 years from now their works are still going to be accessible? And I read this book, and I would say, hands down, it's one of the 10 best books I ever read. How many of you have ever struggled with foreknowledge and free will? You, you think, okay, if God knows what I'm going to do before I do it, when I get to that moment, I'm not really free. Boethius resolves it in uh, book five, the book, the Consolation is only about 120 pages long, and it's five books, which really would be five big chapters. In book five, he resolves a problem in such a way that you say, how did I ever struggle with that in my life? So I'll read you what Lewis wrote in The Discarded Image. Then I'm going to show you how he uses this to influence what he wrote in Mere Christianity and in the Narnian Chronicles. Okay, so here is the consolation of Austin, where Lewis is saying, can there be foreknowledge of the indeterminate? In other words, can there be foreknowledge of that which is free and not determined? In a sense, yes. The character of knowledge depends not on the nature of the object known, but on that of the knowing faculty, the person who knows. Lewis explains, eternity is quite distinct from perpetuity, from mere endless continuance of time. 
Perpetuity is only the attainment of an endless series of moments, each lost as soon as it is attained. He continues, God is eternal, not perpetual. Strictly speaking, he never proceeds. He simply sees. Your future is only an area, and for us a very special area, of his infinite now. He sees, not remembers your yesterday's acts, because yesterday is still there for him. He sees, not perceives your tomorrow's acts, because he's already in tomorrow. As a human spectator, by watching my present act, does not at all infringe its freedom, so I am nonetheless free to act as I choose in the future, because God in that future, his present, watches me acting. I put it this way, God is on the temple. You've got your hand next to your face. And I in no way seeing you do that prevented you from being able to do that. He's on the temple. We have problems with it because we project on God anthropomorphic qualities and then we judge him because he's not like us. Or we judge him because he is like us. Alright, so in mere Christianity there's a whole chapter towards the end of the book called Time and Beyond Time. And Lewis writes this. If you picture time as a straight line along which uh, we have to travel, and you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. Everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. But if he knows I am going to do so-and-so, how can I be free to do otherwise? Well, here, once again, the difficulty comes down to thinking that God is progressing along the timeline like us, the only difference being that he can see ahead and we cannot. Well, if that were true, if God foresaw our acts, it would be very hard to understand how we could be free not to do that. But suppose God is outside and above the timeline. In that case, what we call tomorrow is visible to him in just the same way as what we call today. As the days are now for him, he does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them because though you have lost yesterday, he has not. He doesn't have to pull together a courtroom and get witnesses to find out what happened. He sees you doing them in perpetual now. He does not foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them. Because though tomorrow is not yet there for him, for you, it is for him. You never suppose that your actions at this moment were any less free because God knows what you were doing. And so here he is, here's Boethius who influenced him. Here's Boethius showing up in his Christian apologetic work. And then what about Narnia? What do we discover about Narnia? We go back into Narnia after the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we find out thousands of years have passed. And we find out time in Narnia doesn't run like time in our world. And Lewis is introducing children to these complex um, uh, issues in a way that they could grasp. And if we read them well, maybe we'll begin to grasp them too. Anyway, isn't that fascinating? <coughs> and I thought it was true. Of that. I think. Father, thank you for your kindness that we can be here. Lord, bless Emily. We're just overwhelmed with how you have gifted her and how she has disciplined herself in her time and has allowed us to experience the love of these themes by coming here and not only thinking about them, but talking to one another about them, benefiting, being encouraged. Bless her for her work, and we thank you for this time that we have. Help us to grow to love you more, and to live for you better. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.